KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Kearney Mesa Church holds services despite a COVID-19 outbreak. This particular church has, has chosen a very defiant posture, and unfortunately now a you know, a large number of the members of their church have been infected with COVID. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What the rollout of coronavirus vaccines might look like here. Doctors and nurses, and then first responders, and then also uh, nursing home workers. That's phase 1A. A new police oversight board is in the works following voter approval. Plus, fraud investigations block legitimate unemployment benefits for some Californians. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Our top story today, as COVID-19 cases continue to soar in San Diego County, a church in Kearney Mesa where an outbreak occurred earlier this month held in-person services again yesterday. Meanwhile, busy hospitals are wary of even more cases as the holidays are upon us. Joining us for the latest on the COVID-19 crisis is San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Well, the Awakened Church was in the news again this weekend. According to a Union Tribune story, more than 100 people attended services indoors, most not wearing masks. Start with why the county decided to cite a COVID-19 outbreak there when businesses and other places have not been specifically named. Well, as it relates to outbreaks, uh, we've often said, we've said consistently from the beginning that when there is a concern or a danger to the public, uh, or there's an entity that is not cooperating uh, in the case investigation or contact tracing, uh, then we will release that and make that public. Uh, overwhelmingly, the number of entities that have had outbreaks have fully cooperated. They've notified people who might be infected. They have worked with us. Uh, the Awakened Church refused to do uh, any of those actions and steps. And so our only possible recourse to let people know that they may have been exposed was to publicly release the information. Um, and, you know, this church in particular continues uh, to have a very defiant spirit um, that I believe is, is not only contributing to the spread of COVID-19, but is certainly inconsistent with the general thought or approach of protecting, say, the least among us. And uh, the response from Awakened Church then has been pretty much the same, even after being notified of the outbreak by the county. Well, it is. And, and, and I know, Mark, I know that in times of, of difficulty and crisis, uh, the important role that faith plays in our community and in individual lives uh, is more important than ever. 
for my my own faith and my own church we we are a group of individuals of shared faith we have a building but the building is not the church um and and so the the ability uh for religion and faith to continue remains uh, my wife and i this weekend went to a safe physically distanced outdoor mass and 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 were able to to participate in our faith uh, without doing it in in a dangerous or reckless way and all anyone has to do is google covid church service and read the litany of horrific stories of super spreading events of significant outbreaks and the, the loss of life and and so that is why we're taking the actions we're taking not out of a desire to impede religious expression or belief but out of a desire to protect life uh, from one of the highest risk settings and i think the overwhelming majority of our faith communities understand that and have been wonderful partners uh you know this particular church has has chosen a very defiant posture and unfortunately now a you know, a large number of the members of their church have been infected with COVID. Do we know how many are connected to, to the Awakened Church? Um, I believe the initial uh, list is, is is well over a dozen. I'm, I'm not sure of the latest total. Um, and then, you know, again, we're also having communication challenges where they're refusing to share information with members of their congregation and really be cooperative as we try to do the case investigation and contact tracing aspect of this. So we we don't know the, the total number of, of individuals. Is there enforcement that could be done with this or any church considering the U.S. Supreme Court's decision last week siding with so-called religious liberty regarding restrictions on services at places of worship? Yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court decision really has no bearing on California. The uh, ruling was a very strict guidance from New York that has subsequently been changed. It doesn't really have much impact on what New York is doing today. And so at this point, uh, that ruling, uh, while symbolic and it could have uh, impacts down the road, doesn't have any direct application of what we are doing here in, in the state of California. But again, no one is doing this out of a desire to in, impede anyone's ability to, to uh, gather and express their, their religion. You just can't do it indoors. Um, you know, we know that this is one of the highest risk settings. And you know, I think the overwhelming majority of, of, of the faith community cares deeply about the most vulnerable and they care deeply about protecting seniors uh, and they care deeply about protecting folks with underlying health conditions, which is why the overwhelming majority are doing it responsibly in physically distanced outdoor settings uh, or virtually. Uh, and, and again, I think faith for, for folks who that's a part of their life, it is even uh, a greater part of their life in times of difficulty and adversity and struggle but there's always gonna be a few that choose to go a different path. And so it's it's been very frustrating uh, to uh, continue to, uh, to have these struggles uh, with the Awakened Church. And we're gonna to continue to do everything we can to both protect people's right to gather responsibly for their religious beliefs, but also to uh, enforce the public health orders designed to, to protect life. Do you anticipate the county taking further actions to force Awakened Church to stop holding indoor services? Well, from a public health standpoint, we've we've done what we can do, which is issuing the cease and desist order. I know there are ongoing uh, meetings, including many today, uh, with law enforcement and the district attorney's office about what next steps they might take. Um, and you know, again, our message to the public is there are a lot of ways to safely and responsibly engage uh, in religion and faith services, uh, absent doing it in an indoor setting. And so, we strongly encourage the public to not attend indoor religious services for the same reason we don't attend. Uh, indoor dining or indoor gym operations or, or other things like that at, at this time with the number of cases and the increase in hospitalizations and everything we're seeing in our region. Let's turn to the surge of COVID-19 cases in the county. We continue to see record-breaking numbers of cases each day. What are these numbers telling us now? Well, they tell us the dangers of exponential growth. You know, if you run 300 cases a day uh, and each of those individuals, say, transmits it to one other person, that would be 300 more. 
when you start getting into days when you, when you have 1,500 plus cases, you look at the, the rate of transmission between that and you understand how quickly you can get in a very dire situation. Uh, we're very concerned not only about where we are today, but about what is coming uh, in the coming weeks as we come out of the Thanksgiving holiday, a time when despite all the public health guidance, we suspect a large number of folks traveled uh, perhaps to areas of the country that are in a worse situation than us and the number of people who gathered indoors. And so we're, we're very concerned about where we are. But, you know, Mark, we're very concerned about where we will be in two to three weeks, both with the number of cases, but also with the increase in hospitalizations. We have to remember that cases tend to lag about seven to 10 days after the exposure and hospitalizations tend to lag about 21 to 24 days after the cases. And so we are expecting continued increase both in cases and hospitalizations, which is why each and every San Diegan uh, has to make the individual decision and choice uh, that we're gonna come together one more time uh, to slow the spread, get this under control. Uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel here. We are in preparation for vaccines, but it is gonna take some time. But the first thing we have to do uh, is really focused between now and the end of the year to get the spread under control. I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. It may be the light at the end of the tunnel that was just referred to. Another company announced it's seeking emergency approval for its COVID-19 vaccine. Moderna will now join Pfizer as the first two companies asking U.S. regulators for permission to distribute their vaccine. If approved, Pfizer's rollout could begin as early as December 12th. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento asked the county's public health leaders what that will look like in San Diego. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento asked the county's public health leaders what that will look like in San Diego. Here's part of her Zoom interview with Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Machione and Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten. Thank you to both of you for making time for this. I want to begin with how the vaccine will get to San Diego. You know, it looks like the Pfizer vaccine could be here first and then it must be stored at, you know, minus 70 degrees Celsius. So how will it get here and, and where would it be offloaded in San Diego? Yes, there has, there's a clear requirement on the temperature, on the storage uh, for the vaccine. Uh, the way it's even shipped, uh, it's coming in a special kind of uh, cooling storage um, to what we have prepared here at the county to our providers who have this type of specialized freezing. And then, you know, happy to talk more what we have done proactively to buy additional of these specialized uh, cooling units, freezing units for the vaccine as we think about the distribution across with our healthcare providers throughout San Diego. Oh, I was just going to add that um, in submitting your application, providers submitting their application uh, and identifying what allocations they want, they have to provide evidence that they have the capability to store the vaccines appropriately. And particularly with the Pfizer, it is the uh, sub-cooling or sub-freezing. So they have to have the uh, capacity to manage and store the vaccines appropriately. Uh, and if they don't, then they can't get at least that particular vaccine. You mentioned applications from providers. Can you clarify how many you've received if you've actually approved any? We don't do the approving. We just help providers fill out the information that the CDC requires. 
and that information goes directly uh, to the CDC, and uh, then they will approve the uh, process. We're collecting the information from hospitals, from clinics, from medical group practices, et cetera, but it's being submitted up to the state. And also, we are a vaccinator ourselves, right? Our public health clinics. Can you just clarify where the county will be storing it, if that's if that's confirmed, ready to go as soon as potentially December 12th? We have a, a vaccine warehouse that uh, where we uh, store all of our other vaccines. Uh, we might be, uh, we'll be working with partners uh, early on until we get our freezers, uh, but. Once we get our freezers, then it will be in our uh, vaccine warehouse location. But we're not going to tell you where that is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's, not, it, it's not secretive, but it, it is a secured environment with all the requirements that we have yeah. to have for a vaccine. I know a CDC advisory group recently held a meeting on the priority groups that would receive it. It looks like healthcare mm-hmm. workers and other essential employees first in line, plus residents in long-term care facilities and older adults with medical conditions. So how will the county identify where they are and then also notify those particular individuals? So doctors and nurses and then first responders and then also uh, nursing home workers. That's phase 1A. Uh, 1B is actually... Uh, individuals that have at least two or more underlying medical conditions. And as I stated before, that's pretty much, that's a, over half, it's almost probably two thirds, if not more, uh, over 75% with 1A and 1B of the entire San Diego population. So we will have to determine what, within that group, what's going to be prioritized. Again, individuals uh, with two or more underlying medical conditions. And CDC recognizes this too. So we are continuously asking the state and CDC for more granular uh, guidance so that everyone is doing the same thing. Is it going to be, if you fit this category, come to this location during these hours? How specific are you going to get with with uh, I, with notifying people? First, we start with the medical homes because that's where the relationship is. Mm-hmm. So the medical homes... Uh, of the uh, physicians or healthcare providers uh, will know their patients, right? Because you have patient confidentiality. So they'll know those folks that need to be, you know, uh, uh, prioritized, if you will, on their conditions, number one. So that relationship will be with the provider community. But we're fortunate in California, we're fortunate in San Diego of having a huge segment of our population that is tied to a medical home. Uh, that's the great work our state has done in the, the coverage, you know, of 26 years of age and having people access to medical homes. Clearly, there are some that still don't, uh, and that's the population, and we'll talk about how we're communicating with that population that does not have a medical home, uh, kind of like we've been doing with T3, about how do we get to those folks for testing and so forth, or what we've been doing with seasonal flu already, which, by the way, is going fairly well, approaching nearly a million already. Uh, which looks like will surpass last year's. But it's there's multiple avenues we're using of how do we connect to those people that need to come in. Karen, this is not the first time we've had to deal with this type of situation in terms of prioritizing vaccinations. As you may recall, during H1N1 pandemic, the same, it was actually, it's probably even worse in terms of there was a small amount of vaccine that was initially uh, rolled out. Um, and then there was prioritization of the priorities. 
And that information, the guidance comes from CDC, and we push that out at every opportunity during our press conferences, during our news uh, stories, okay, yeah. So, and for our providers through our KHAN. So that's the way we will use the same strategies that we use uh, in general for pushing out information about our vaccination efforts. And you just brought up H1N1. And um, the thing that's going to be different about this round of vaccination is that the leading contenders are two dose vaccines. And American adults do not have a particularly good track record of following those schedules. So how do you plan to to, you know, monitor or support compliance? we're, We're blessed literally blessed in San Diego, having one of the best immunization registries in the state. Uh, the San Diego Immunization Registry, SDR, has been long, uh, established for a long period of time. Uh, and it's a very intelligent system that, uh, um, that for vaccinations, uh, and it's mainly children, but we, even for kids, we register in, uh, yeah. into the SDIR. For COVID, it's, it's, manda- it's mandatory. And so we're going to have an advantage in the sense that people will be registered in when they get their first dose, uh, not only being given physical reminder cards, but having a system that will be able to follow up with them in addition to their provider community, their medical home. And you're right, you know, we still have to get them to take the first dose and then you gotta get that second dose. And all the polls are showing that only what, 60% of people are willing to do the first dose. So that's gonna be a big lift. And it's gonna be the ongoing uh, consciousness raising, public awareness, the media, the outreach and education groups that we've established, the faith community, it's going to have to be a saturation approach of all places, trusted messengers, of reminding not only the first dose, but that second dose. And then obviously having the type of technology and sophistication to know what vaccine they took. We have a lot of experience with two-dose series vaccinations. Um, First, hepatitis A outbreak and then our meningococcal uh, group B uh, outbreak at San Diego State. And so our San Diego Immunization Registry provides us with the opportunity and the ability to track vaccinations. Uh, Obviously systems are only as good as the data that goes in, uh, but when we administer uh, the vaccinations, like if we are doing it out in the field uh, to uh, um, vulnerable populations, staff takes, an iPad out with them and they do, can do it then or, th- but they documented if they don't do that. And then when they come back to the home uh, base, then they put all that information in. Are you both going to get the vaccine? I, I have said this many times before. Uh, the FDA uh, next week will be reviewing Pfizer's application. They will be reviewing all of the uh, applications for the other pharmaceutical companies to um for the uh, EUA, the emergency use authorization, if FDA goes through that application process, they say it's safe, then we will recommend it to the community. And by recommending it to the community, I have to lead uh, by example and get it myself. So with the uh, flu vaccinations, you'll see pictures of me getting the flu shot at those pods. So we will be doing the same thing. My father taught me that uh, you take care of your family first and then you eat. 
So uh, I'm going to make sure that there is, uh, I, I took my seasonal flu shot. I'm looking forward to getting my COVID vaccine shot, but I'm going to make sure first our community who needs it most gets it. And then you'll see me there in line uh, getting that uh, COVID vaccine. That's just a part of health reporter Taryn Mento's lengthy interview with Director Machione and Dr. Wooten. You can read the full transcript at kpbs.org. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. The pandemic has led to millions of unemployment claims across the state and efforts by the state and Bank of America to cut down on possible fraud. But as KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us, those efforts have ensnared San Diego residents with legitimate unemployment claims, leaving many of them fighting for their benefits for months. Gary Hito immigrated to San Diego from Ethiopia 20 years ago. For the past 16 years, he's been a shuttle driver at the San Diego airport. When the pandemic hit in March, thousands of flights were canceled, and Hito was soon furloughed. They, they said if the situation come back, they will hire me again. Hito was able to get unemployment a month after that. For a household including his wife and four school-aged children, the money from unemployment was huge. For rent, for family. I have a big family. But in the middle of October, his account was almost zeroed out. $4,200 were gone. When I went there to take my money for rent, I don't see the money. He's been fighting to get his money back ever since. When I call, they said they will send me another card. After they send me another card, the situation is the same. Again, I try to call to explain to them. They transferred to me for about three people. I wait about one hour and 15 minutes, then they hung up. Despite call after call to Bank of America, he's been unable to get the process even started. California is one of only three states in the country that doesn't directly deposit unemployment insurance payments to people's bank accounts. Instead, it sends them debit cards from Bank of America. But the cards have proven susceptible to theft and skimming devices. And then there are fraudulent claims being made to the state's Employment Development Department, which administers the state's unemployment system and authorizes the amounts on the debit cards. Widespread fraud for a state with emptying coffers means the state has been cracking down on any accounts that look fraudulent. But working immigrants like Hito and laid-off house cleaner Rama Ibrahim, who's from Somalia, have found their accounts zeroed out as well. She said for the last three months she's been told by the bank to take up her case with the state 
and vice versa. Navigating the various help numbers as well as a major bank and an overwhelmed state bureaucracy is difficult even for people with English as a first language. So Ibrahim and Hito depend on the work of the Somali Bantu Association of America. From its office on University Avenue in City Heights, Executive Director Saeed Abiyao has helped thousands of African immigrants navigate the state's social safety net. They don't speak any English. They were having difficult connecting the resources that are available for them. We, as the agency, we were trying to provide translation through WhatsApp. But even with Saeed's help, Gary Hito and Rama Ibrahim have still hit dead ends. Bank of America and the state didn't restore their accounts after countless attempts. Rancho Penasquitos resident Ian Mack is in the same boat. An independent contractor in the entertainment industry, he's spent the past two months trying to get his account with over $8,000 in it restored. He reads a letter he was sent. The claim has been closed because we believe the account of the account or the claim have been subject to fraud or suspicious activity. We're here to help. If you have any questions, please call us at he even spent over five hours on hold one time. The people who, who, who have rent to pay, the people who have car, car payments to pay, as you say, the people who've got four or five kids and can't feed their, you know, not every day can you go to a food bank and there's, and there's food there. And why should they have to do that through no fault of their own? In a statement, a Bank of America spokesperson told KPBS that it is working with law enforcement to crack down on fraudulent claims and that anyone with a legitimate claim impacted by these efforts should contact them immediately. But for a lot of people just trying to keep a roof over their head this holiday season, that task can not only be daunting, but near impossible. Joining me is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. Max, welcome to the show. Good to be here. I understand there's been some movement on a couple of these unemployment benefit freezes because of this story. Yeah, after reaching out to Bank of America, both Ian Mack and Rama Ibrahim saw their accounts unfrozen by Bank of America. Uh, Ian Mack has a, kind of a longer road ahead of him, as he tells me. He still has to take up his claim with uh, EDD. Um, and so he hasn't been able to access his money. But Rama Ibrahim, I spoke with her on Friday and said she was able to go uh, take out money from her account. As of this morning, we're still waiting to hear on whether Gary Hito's claim has been um, started because he had trouble even getting it going. How long did it take from the time they were cut off to having their benefits restored? It was a process that took over a month in each case. Uh, you know, in terms of Gary Hito, he never was even able to start the process because he had to wait so long to even get on the phone with somebody. And again, these are people who don't have the luxury of time. I think Ian Mack, the person I profiled, was the one who had the most time because uh, native English speaker um, and really committed himself to this, whereas everybody else, they're managing a large family. They're still trying to find odd jobs. They're trying to make it work. Um, and it's really really difficult to navigate this system, especially if English is not your first language. So in each case, it took over a month, and that's for money that they earned. It's their unemployment insurance. Were you able to determine what triggered the Employment Development Department to put a freeze on these particular bank accounts? In each case, the original freeze came because of fraudulent spending. 
Uh, so, you know, it's very possible in each case, we're, we haven't gotten to the bottom of it, that the uh, identities of these individuals were in some way stolen, either through a skimming device on an ATM or having um, their own identity purchased off of the dark web by scammers, things like that. They then had to go into this entire process just to prove that their accounts should be restored. Do we know how many accounts have been frozen in this way? We don't know because, at least anecdotally, quite a bit. There's been a lot of reporting across the state. CalMatters up in the uh, North California and the Bay Area, they've been looking into this. So we don't have actual numbers, but we do know that this system is entirely overwhelmed. Why were these unemployment benefit debit cards issued without security, without, let's say, security chips? Was that to get them out faster? This is an outdated technology. Basically, the debit cards stem from after the 2008 recession and when the state went through financial difficulties all the way you know, through 2010 and beyond. Um, since then, the contract hasn't really changed and the technology hasn't really changed. I myself was on unemployment and uh, a few years ago and I got a card from EDD uh, that looks exactly the same as the one they're pointing out now that they're putting out now to you know, thousands and thousands of people. And it didn't have this chip, which I think has become the standard for security in in this day and age. Apparently, that's just one of the mistakes that EDD has made in administering millions of unemployment claims this year. Tell us more about the widespread fraud that the state is now dealing with. Right. You know, these are fraud, you know, these accounts were tagged as being fraudulent. And it was possibly because there was real identity theft happening here. And that's happening across the entire system. Uh, EDD was never made for the coronavirus pandemic, right? We have a Great Depression level levels of unemployment happening right now. This was already kind of an older system that hadn't been updated in many, many years, and it wasn't built for this. So what people are doing is they're taking advantage of the fact that so many people are applying for unemployment claims that um, the state obviously wants to help as many people as possible and is approving them without doing much more of this uh you know, background checks to seeing who's being approved for these cases, especially in um, a case that was brought up by several district attorneys last week. People who are right now in prison were getting unemployment insurance for basically being laid off from jobs they didn't have, right? Because they're incarcerated. That doesn't mean that incarcerated people uh, don't get things like a stimulus check or, or other access to social services. Oftentimes they do. But in this case, they were basically being, their identities were being used to create fraudulent claims. Outside of the Somali Bantu Association, is there any other group helping people regain access to their unemployment funds when they've been cut off like this? A lot of social service organizations are just trying to get people signed up for their employment funds, and they are overwhelmed. It's really tough. It's super time intensive. Uh, so a lot of groups in the area are working on this. But again, it's kind of all um, broken up into different groups that are trying to do triage here. Uh, one thing that we do know is that benefits for gig workers and people who are self-employed um, are ending very soon. So if people don't get their unemployment benefits restored soon, they're going to miss out on money that is coming from the federal government that will expire at the end of December, taking an already desperate situation for these communities and making it worse. Of course, right now there are negotiations going on in D.C., but there hasn't been any traction in over, um, I believe, four months 
in terms of making sure that people actually have money to get through this pandemic, which has only shown, shown signs of uh, worsening. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler. Max, thank you. Thank you. The first step toward making the promise of Measure B a reality will take place at a virtual community meeting this afternoon. San Diego City voters passed Measure B earlier this month, which gave approval for the creation of a new Commission on Police Practices. The Commission will have greater independence and resources to provide oversight of police actions than the existing review board. But Measure B did not specify details about the Commission, for instance, how it should be set up or how members should be chosen. So today's Community Roundtable asks the public how they'd like the Commission to operate. Joining me is Patrick Anderson, a member of the existing Community Review Board and one of the hosts of today's meeting. And Patrick, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It hasn't even been a month since the vote approving Measure B took place. Why are these community meetings starting so quickly? Well, a few months ago on the existing CRB um, and with what looked to be very promising polls of Measure B, we formed a transition committee, an ad hoc committee on the CRB to begin planning for what seemed like an inevitable transition. And so as part of that work, I, as the new chair of the outreach committee, volunteered to uh, create and host some of these roundtables, hoping that the community can be involved in every stage of this transition process. Okay, so can you remind us how different this new commission is supposed to be from the review board on police practices that you're a member of right now? Sure, absolutely. So the first major difference is that this will be an independent commission, which means it won't be a part of the city's office of boards and commissions. But there's another really crucial difference, which is that the work that this commission will do will be based on its own investigations of all police shootings, all in custody deaths, and any complaints against SDPD that the commission feels need independent investigation. Currently, we are what, uh, what's called a review board, which means that our work is limited to reviewing the investigations conducted by internal affairs of SDPD. So it's a significant difference. And what aspects of the new commission are you hoping community members weigh in on? all aspects. Um, you know, I plan to host a number of these roundtables, and I should say I'm co-hosting tonight with the author of Measure B, Andrea St. Julian, and with another member of the CRB, Poppy Fitch. This first roundtable is intended to get the community to identify those key issues, themes, questions, and topics that are of intense concern to them about the new commission and about the transition. Once we've got a list of those key issues, we're gonna plan follow-up forums focused on each one in turn. So tonight I'm looking for questions about the process. I'm looking for key issues that different groups um, are really focused on. 
One such issue, by the way, is the application and appointment process for new commissioners. There are a lot of groups who want to ensure that that's a transparent process and that member of, members of the community are able to apply and that the community is involved in the selection of commissioners. So the very first follow-up roundtable is going to be focused on that very issue. Ultimately, though, it's the city council that will draft an ordinance with all the specifics about the commission. So how confident are you that they'll take public input into consideration? I am very optimistic that they'll take public input. And we've had a good response from uh, existing city council members and also the new city council members when the transition committee of the current CRB has met with them. I think you're right, though that we really need to stay focused on the city council and its various implementation ordinances to make sure that the commission lives up to the real promise of Measure B. Speaking about the city council again, they will have to allocate funds to hire an executive director, an attorney, and staff for the new Commission on Police Practices. And considering the budget crunch the city is going to face next year, do you think that may be delayed? I hope it isn't. I think Measure B passed with almost 75% of the vote. I think the community has sent a clear and strong signal to the mayor and to the city council that this should be a top priority. And if San Diego wants to do this right, it must give the funding required to the commission um, so that the eventual commissioners will be able to do exactly what the community has invested their faith in them to do. Now, dozens of community groups have already been invited to today's meeting, but how can people listening join in on today's community roundtable? That's right. We've actually invited over 100 community groups. Um, over 50 have RSVP'd. Anybody is welcome to view the live stream. Uh, we'll start today at 4 p.m. If you go to YouTube, do a search for City of San Diego Public Meetings. Right around 4 p.m., if you refresh that page, you should see the live stream pop up. Meanwhile, while you're watching the live stream, we invite you to send us an email with questions and comments to the following email address, cppoutreachcommittee at gmail.com. We're going to record, document, and synthesize all of these comments after the meeting. But meanwhile, we're going to be monitoring the email uh, while the roundtable is going on. And time permitting, we'll move over questions and comments from email to the meeting itself. And I have been speaking with Patrick Anderson, one of the hosts of today's Community Roundtable. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. Jorge Gonzalez is an expert in Afro-Latin music. He's a record collector and a DJ who grew up in our border region. He's also the director of the Afro-Mexican Department at the World Beat Center in San Diego and wrote his master's thesis on Afro-Mexican history. In a new episode of Port of Entry, Jorge and host Alan Lilienthal take us on a mini-trip through the evolution of Latin music, tracing its roots back to West Africa. The tour kicks off with the sounds of the kora, a West African instrument key to the development of Latin American music. It is a gourd with a bow, and you have chords that connect it to the drum. If you hear the sound, it's just very spiritual. It almost sounds like a voice, right, singing, because it just has so many chords. This song is called Dudu, a collaboration by Malian artists Ali Farcature and Tumani Diviate. When I heard it, I was like, this is it. This is the track that is, is a testament, right, of how their sound that they were creating was replicated and cross-pollinated to the Americas. This is the instrument some would argue that the harp comes from. And also this is an instrument that influenced a lot of the Spanish guitars, you know, like flamenco, the way it's played. And this was the same instrument that would inspire the requintos in, in Latin America, uh, in boleros you hear it. Next up on our trip, Veracruz, Mexico. Veracruz is Mexico's most important port and is actually where the Spanish conquest of Mexico began. When the Spanish arrived, they brought a lot of African slaves from Cuba who over time started mixing with the European and indigenous people. This community eventually became known as Jarochos. This is Son del Mar by a group called Los Cojolites. In Veracruz, where Los Cojolites is from, there's all these African-named communities that are very much aware and are Afro-descendants of this legacy. During the early uprisings in Mexico and Latin America, there was a law that passed that banned Africans from being in groups bigger than six. Also, their drums were taken away. So stomping and rhythm composition began to really be reflected in the instrumentation of drumming guitars, or known as jaranas, which are very rhythmic and very drum-like. Jorge says this percussive style of playing the jaranas is how these maroon and Afro-indigenous communities in Veracruz birthed the musical style Son Jarocho. They adopted this style that was at one point very Spanish-based, and they redid it in their, in their own way. Next on our tour, 
the epicenter of the cross-pollination of African and Latin culture, Cuba. Cuba and Puerto Rico would become like the layover before African slaves would make it, either get sold there or get sold elsewhere. The boats that would eventually go to Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, New Orleans would make a stop in Cuba. This is El Carretero by Buena Vista Social Club. The African presence in Cuba is huge. It was Spain's occupation that completely destroyed Cuba's indigenous population in the 1500s. And over the next few centuries, Africans were enslaved and taken to Cuba by both the Spanish and the British to expand production of sugarcane. Africans eventually outnumbered Europeans on the island. This is a country life that a lot of Africans experience, so it just makes sense that a lot of the folk soul music would sound the way it does, very melancholic. And you hear the, the, the mimicking of the cora. Buena Vista Social Club was a 1996 reunion of some of Havana's best Afro-Cuban musicians. It was also a real venue where some of these musicians would jam together in the 1940s and 50s, a time when the Afro-Cuban music scene thrived. Every artist and musician that participated in this album, they were around, you know, at the peak of the golden era of the music Cuban scene in the 1950s, who had gotten forgotten, you know, after the Cuban Revolution. Before the revolution ended in 1959, Havana felt more like Vegas. The government in place let the American mob put up countless casinos and nightclubs. But post-revolution, Cuba's new government shut many venues down in an effort to clean up what it saw as a hedonistic lifestyle. Many of these musicians lost their livelihood almost immediately. So a lot of this continued zigzag of African and Latin music. Jorge again credits Cuba because of its radio transmitters, especially before its government assumed control of broadcast media in the 1960s. The radio airways would reach anywhere in the Gulf of Mexico or anywhere in, in Colombia or Venezuela. So some, some of these little rural community towns would turn on the FM station and they would listen to a radio station from Cuba that would be playing music from Africa. In the 60s and 70s, along with radio, there was also a unique underground scene of record collectors in Colombia, where we're headed to next. These DJs were called Picos. Picos, Picos, right? P-I-C-O. And it has to do with pickups, because they would put the sound systems on top of pickup trucks, and they would go around towns bringing that one vinyl that one DJ had that was from Africa and, and everybody wanted. Jorge says tracks like this one were for sure blasted out of those picos in Colombia back in the day. This is Nga Nga by Ghanaian musician Ebo Taylor, a pioneer of highlife music and Afrobeat. Highlife is like everyday music in, in Ghana. You hear it everywhere, you know? It's like reggae in Jamaica. The Ghanaian people were bringing a lot of that jazz that was coming from, you know, the London scene and their, their access to it through the British connection. The economy was thriving. Uh, the music scene was at a boom. 
you know, James Brown was coming to town and performing. And these artists of, uh, who were playing High Life, a lot of them would gravitate towards that funk sound that, that James Brown would, would bring, right? We hear some synthesizers, we hear some effects. beauty of it is it's just, it's the connection of how these African sounds was reaching the coast of Colombia and it all happened with the DJ scene. That was Jorge Gonzalez, director of the Afro-Mexican Department of the World Beat Center in San Diego and Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal. To hear the full episode, get Port of Entry wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.